Well, last week we talked about Mary and Joseph and the, the challenging circumstances they find themselves in, which, which usually get left out of the Christmas story. There's, I, I've never been to a, a Christmas pageant where there's um, gossiper number one and gossiper number two in the village of Bethlehem talking trash about Mary's pregnancy, right? You never see that part in the Christmas play. Nobody ever calls Mary like names in the Christmas play, but it was a challenging time. And, and they found themselves on, on a five-day journey, about a 90-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem through the mountains with Mary in her third trimester. Nothing fun about that, you know, but, but ladies, the good news is when she was tired, she had the luxury of riding on a donkey. So, I mean, that's way better. And when you're in your third trimester, I'm sure it's great to be riding on a bumpy donkey for mile after mile after mile. So it encourages childbirth. So that's a, a blessing in disguise. There we go. But this week, we're going to study the birth of Jesus Christ. And we're, in that, we're going to examine two huge, huge questions. And the first question is simply, what does it mean to have peace? What, what does it mean to have peace? And secondly, what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? Let's, let's jump back into our story. And, and most of us know the gist of things at this point. Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem. And because of the census, every room in the village is occupied. And we need to remember, this is a village of about 400 people. There's not a Motel 6. There's no reason for anybody to really go on vacation in Nazareth. It's not the Riviera at all. It's a completely unremarkable village with 400 people. You couldn't profitably run a hotel there. So there are no hotels there. Um, The closest thing they probably have is... um, some kind of inn, and it's a basic four-walled structure so that the shepherds, if they wanted to, if they'd been out for a week or so, they could put their entire flock inside this building. The shepherd would sleep in the doorway. They'd get a good night's sleep, and their animals would be safe. So we're going to start out by busting one Christmas myth because in almost all the Christmas stories you see, the innkeeper always gets a bad rap, right? You know, we always treat him like he has a spare bed. He's just a jerk, and he's not going to let Mary use it. So it's always like, is there any room? No, no. There's no room in my inn or my heart. You know, that's always the way we sort of view the innkeeper. And he gets a really bad rap because for all we know, he could be in heaven right now. Every Christmas, he's like, really? Really? You know, he's like, he's telling the truth when he says there's no space. There's no space. It's what he's saying. And and literally it was, look, there's sheep everywhere. There's no space. I'm not a bad guy. I'm just running an inn. There's no space. And most people who were staying there probably had relatives or distant relatives and they were calling in favors with their relatives to find somewhere to stay. Because again, village of 400 people, that's like a, a small condo here. There's no hotel there. There's just rooms. And so there's nowhere to go. So they end up hanging out with the animals. And there's a lot of discussions about what it was. Um, some people think it was a cave, but the general idea is that it was outdoors. It wasn't like a barn, you know, with a nice sliding door so that, you know, the painters of, of the birth scene would have a really nice sort of backdrop to work with. It's just something outside. It's exposed. It could have been just a lean-to. It could have been just a roof attached onto the side of another house, but they were outdoors. They were exposed. It was uncomfortable. Uh, it wasn't anything like the idea most of us have where we act like somebody came through before they got there, you know, and fluffed up the hay just right and, and groomed everything and positioned the animals. They're just animals, and it's just where they could find. It was the only place that wasn't completely exposed. But it definitely didn't feel very divine. 
That's the last word anyone would have used to describe it. So Luke chapter 2, verse 6, this is where we're going to start together. Luke chapter 2, verse 6, it says, So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. You're going to want to underline swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. A manger is just a feeding trough. That's all it is. Because there was no room for them in the inn. And there, there's several things worth pointing out here that are just interesting. You'll notice that Jesus was Mary's firstborn. And that's significant because all the way through Old Testament law, the first of everything and the firstborn of everything belongs to the Lord. That's what God says. So Jesus is Mary's firstborn son who belongs to the Father. That's significant. But the term firstborn also implies something else about Mary. It implies that she had other kids. She had other kids. Uh, There's a doctrine uh, or tradition in Catholicism that Mary lived in perpetual virginity. So she was just a virgin before and a virgin after. And, And the Latin term for this is semper virgo. And I heard somebody once say, if that were true, it's safe to assume that Joseph would have been semper bummo, which means perpetually bummed out. Um, But that's not what happened at all. Mary had other children the completely normal and natural way. So check this out. In Matthew chapter 13, it says this. People in Nazareth are are getting annoyed by Jesus' teaching. He goes back to his hometown and everyone's like, "You're, you're just Jesus. It's no big deal. And we forget this too. We forget that people in Nazareth didn't awe towards Jesus at all. They didn't think he was anything special. When he shows up and starts saying he's God, they're like, we've watched you for 30 years around these parts. There's, there's nothing special about you. He wasn't like a street hustler who actually made the ball disappear under the cups or anything like that. Just totally normal guy with shady birth circumstances in most of their opinions. And so this is what they say. They say, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Sisters, plural. So so there's at least seven kids in this family. Mary's popping them out. So she goes on and has an absolutely, relatively normal family life. Lots of kids around. Don't ever forget that Jesus was a normal part of a normal family for those 30 years. There's, There's nothing outside of a few hints to his parents that he's anything special. Nobody's thinking this guy's really going to do great things. And I had you underline the word swaddling cloths for a reason. What are swaddling cloths? They're not something from babies or us. They're, they're kind of like strips of fabric that are most commonly like what we would call maybe gauze that you would wrap an injury in or you would tape your ankles with or something like that. It's semi-transparent, thin, stretchy cloth. And really interesting, when guys would go on a long journey, men would wrap enough of this cloth around their waist to actually be wrapped around their entire body in case they died. That's what they would do. They'd be prepped, hey, if if I die, I'm on a journey with some friends. The least I could do is give them something to wrap my body in. And that's what they had so that the journey could continue and their body could be transported. So Jesus is literally wrapped in grave clothes when he's born. He's wrapped in grave clothes, his father's grave clothes. And just as he chose the circumstances of his own birth, Jesus chose the cross before he even created the universe. He chose the cross before he even created the universe. He knew the future 
and he created us anyway. Uh, and that's love on a level that we can't fathom. We, we cannot fathom a God who would say, I'm, I'm going to create beings that have free will, and the cost of that will be my own son. But the Son and the Father and the Spirit say, we'll do it anyway. We'll do it anyway. It's literally incomprehensible that they chose to do that. And, and hanging over the whole Christmas story is the shadow of the cross. The, the death of Jesus was not an unexpected twist at the end of the fairy tale that took God by surprise. It wasn't the story going wrong. It was the purpose of his entire coming. There's never been another prophet, another religious figure, another person who claimed to be God, who ever came to the earth with the intention of dying. That's, again, something so far removed from anything else we've even come up with as a human civilization. But he came with the purpose of his death in mind from the beginning. From the beginning. Mary's birth wasn't supernaturally more comfortable than other births. We, we have no record of a painless childbirth where Jesus just sort of slides out and doesn't need to be wiped down. He's just clean and wonderful and sitting there quietly while angels sing a cappella together just to really set the mood just right. Normally there would have been some type of midwife, even in a village the size of Nazareth, to help. But because of the census, everybody's scattered all over the place. Mary gives birth with no midwife. And if you look at the verses again in Luke chapter 2, who, who is it that wraps Jesus in the swaddling cloths? It, it's Mary. She does it. She's completely alone. And there's a, there's a great, great deal of loneliness in the story. Joseph is there, but, but if you've had kids, you know exactly how useless we men are during the birth process. And so she's there, and Joseph is just going what do I do? What do I do? And so baby pops out. He holds it. Mary's the one who wraps him up. And she's just there. She's there alone. When you look at the Christmas cards, you sort of have this idea that God arranged for it to just be a perfect night and everything was wonderful. And the, the, the truth is that it must have been terrifying to be Mary. She's 16 at the most at this point. She's in a village away from everybody else. The baby's popped out. She, she can't pop on Facebook and post pictures and have everybody say, love this. Can't do that. There's not family there to share in the joy. There's nobody saying this is a great thing. Anybody who knew about it is probably thinking this is appropriate that they kind of have the baby quietly, you know, given the circumstances. Mary is, is very, very much alone, and so is Joseph, even though they're together. There's a huge amount of loneliness in the story. And, and so... If that's how you feel today, you feel like God's doing something in my life, I feel very, very alone right now. Just know that the mother of Jesus knows how you feel. The mother of Jesus. She, she is bringing Jesus Christ into the world. It, it doesn't really get better than that. But even in the middle of God doing that, she's very, very much alone. There's not a lot of people sharing in her joy at that moment. And at this point, it's worth stopping to ponder and remember something amazing. And it's on your outline. Jesus chose the circumstances of his own birth. He chose them. Again, remember, G Jesus knew how this was all going to play out before he ever got to the earth. And he chose the circumstances of his birth. He, he chose to be born among animals, free of any pomp and circumstance and 
He chose to be the adopted son of a craftsman and a young woman from the, the plainest and least significant of villages. He chose to be born amidst rumors of his mother's infidelity. He chose a childhood in a village where everyone suspected he was born out of wedlock. There must have been whispers, and um, it never even crosses our mind that maybe Jesus grew up being called a bastard. There's serious reason to believe that, because the more conservative a culture, the less people tend to let that sort of thing go. And if you think that's, that's too shocking, just remember, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, he didn't do her a solid and like go through the rest of the village saying, just so you know, supernatural birth going on in Mary's place, nothing shady. He just shows up to Mary and then leaves. You're welcome. She's like, should have videoed this. That would, would, would have solved a lot of problems, right? You know, if it had happened today, she would have done it. She would have been like, hang on a second. Let me just get my phone out. Okay, good. Say it one more time. This is a supernatural work of God. But, but that, that does not happen at all. It doesn't happen at all. And, and get this, even Mary's own children don't really buy the virgin birth thing. Even her own children don't buy it. How, how do we know this? And we know this because 30 years later, when Jesus has started his ministry, he's getting in one of his heated discussions with the religious leaders which happened on a pretty regular basis. They're losing the argument, so they do what people do when they're losing an argument. They they go for a cheap shot. And what's the cheap shot that they go for with Jesus? Jesus is essentially accusing them of acting like their father, and he's implying that their father is Satan. That tends to get people worked up in my experience. so, So this is their response to Jesus. They say in John chapter 8, we weren't born out of fornication. In other words, they're saying, we weren't born out of sexual sin, like you. They go straight for that button 30 years later. This is still the rumor following them around. And we're going to find out later that in the story and life of Jesus, there's a time when he's out teaching that he's God, and there are people believing that he's God, and his family shows up. His siblings don't show up to say, like, we can vouch. He like makes dinner appear every night. It's amazing. They don't show up to do it. They show up because they think he's crazy. So work, work backwards here logically. So, so he's teaching that he's God. His brothers and sisters say he, he must be losing his mind. Now, if you believe that your, your older sibling, the firstborn in your family, was supernaturally born by the Holy Spirit while your mom was a virgin... It's not really that much of a stretch to believe they're God, right? I mean, if you believe that, I think you'd be like, yeah, you're God. I can see that, you know? The, the whole virgin birth thing's sort of a hint. So, you know, I can see that. So what does it mean that they think he's absolutely crazy? It's pretty safe to say. They don't believe it. They don't believe the story. So even in her own family, with her own kids, Mary has to live knowing that they sort of say, we don't really know what happened. It must have been a rough patch for mom and dad. Nobody really talks about it a whole lot. So just don't bring it up and just treat Jesus like everybody else. That's how it was in in Mary's own family. Still lonely years and years later. And Jesus chose all this. And as his childhood played out, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. It wasn't glamorous. In fact, it's, the best word I can give is that it is shockingly human. 
It's shockingly human is the life of Jesus. So why does he choose this path and this life? The answer is just one of the reasons why we love Jesus so much. He, he came to the earth to die on the cross as payment for our sins. We know that. But while he was on the earth, Jesus chose to embrace the fullness of the human experience. He chose to embrace the fullness of the human experience. He wanted to know what it was like to be us, to be human. He chose to know what it felt like to be tempted in a human body with the weakness of the flesh. He chose to experience loneliness, anguish, suffering, isolation, all of that, fear. He chose all of that. He didn't have to, but he did. And, and, and the reason is because Scripture says Jesus is our high priest before God the Father. And he wanted to know exactly what we go through as humans so that he could be the best priest that he could possibly be on our behalf. He's the only mediator between God and man, is what Scripture says. It says this in 1 Timothy. It says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And if, if you have two parties in any type of dispute, the ultimate mediator, and we don't ever get to really have this on, on the earth, but the ultimate mediator would really be someone who perfectly understands both sides, wouldn't it? I mean, that would be the ultimate mediator. That would, that would be the ultimate resolution to any conflict if your mediator can say, I know exactly what it's like to be you. I know exactly what it's like to be you. Jesus is the only person who can say, I know what it is to be God, and I know what it is to be human. There is nobody else who can make that claim. That's why the only mediator between God and men can only be Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who can mediate between the Father and us. Scripture says this about Jesus as our mediator. This is one of my, my favorite portions of Scripture. In Hebrews 4, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Don't ever forget that Jesus knows what it's like to be human. We don't ever need to feel embarrassed in approaching God because we feel weak or because we feel pathetic or because we feel like God's got to be thinking, how, how could you fall into that again? We don't ever need to be embarrassed. Scripture says we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He says, so come, come boldly, knowing that he understands. He understands in a very real sense We've spoken about the challenges that Mary and Joseph faced. Last week we talked about the fact, though, that they're in this trying circumstance, but the glory of God is just around the corner. They're going to see some amazing things in the midst of their trials. They're going to see the Son of God be born into their family. And they're going to see some other things, too. Let's keep reading. Luke chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Now they were in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And Jesus described his own ministry as the ministry of spiritual shepherding. He says that that's what it means to be a leader in the kingdom of God, is to be a shepherd. When, when he talks to Peter before Jesus ascends, after his resurrection, he describes to Peter the art of pastoring as being like a shepherd. And he says, Peter, feed my sheep. That's what I want you to do. And we could spend a whole day talking about all the allegory between shepherding and Jesus, but for now we're just going to say that it's significant that he appears to shepherds with an announcement about the birth of Jesus. And these sheep outside of Bethlehem were most likely owned by the priests. And these were sheep that would have been used, probably lambs as well, that would have been used in the temple sacrifices. So you have something amazing here. You have the shepherds who are taking care of the lambs that are going to be sacrificed for sin in the temple. And they are the first to be told about the arrival of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But it's important not to romanticize the, uh, the occupation of shepherding at the time. You know, again, whenever we do the Christmas play, they always have like nice neat clothes and a perfectly trimmed beard. But, but shepherds at this time had a huge reputation for dishonesty. They were ceremonially unclean, weren't allowed anywhere near the inner parts of the temple, weren't allowed to even be purified so that they could go anywhere close to the inner parts of the temple. Terrible reputation. Nobody wanted to associate with them. Outcasts, criminals, unclean. And that's who gets the news first. And what God is saying is he's saying, I've, I've come for everybody. And we're going to see the angel announce to them that this is good news for everybody, for the unworthy, for the unjustified, for the unclean, the outcast. In other words, it's, it's good news for people like us. It's good news for us. And also interesting is the timing that this implies. You might have heard this before, but, but uh, let's play uh, Christmas Busters. I came up with that all by myself. You're welcome. Christmas Busters. So another one for you is it, it's December 25th when we celebrate Christmas. And most of us tend to think of Israel as a place that's like a desert year round. But in winter, Israel gets really, really cold. And in many parts of the country, it actually snows. So the one time of year that we can be pretty sure they wouldn't have had their sheep out exposed to the elements would have been around December 25th. There's absolutely no chance. Most likely it was September, October, November at the latest. But when it gets later in the year than that, they move them into some type of shelter, into a cave. They don't leave them out in the freezing cold air to basically get hypothermia and die. So, so why do we have Christmas on December 25th? Well, basically in church history, at a certain point, we hijacked a pagan holiday related to the god, the god Saturn and made it Christmas and said, this is going to be Jesus' birthday. So we just, just remember that if you ever get worked up about the whole Christ and Christmas thing. Just remember that uh, he wasn't really born anywhere near December 25th. Nothing close. And Easter is actually the same way. Nowhere close to the time that Jesus would have risen from the dead. It's another hijacked pagan holiday. So while Jesus was born, for real, he wasn't born on December 25th or anywhere close like that. I'm looking at some faces and you guys look like absolutely crushed. <laughs> I feel horrible right now. People are like, what? What? There's going to be a time of ministry after the message, and I'll, I'll, I'll put an arm around so you can come cry on my shoulder. <laughs> Verse chapter 9, it says this. It says, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. 
Remember we talked about this with Zacharias and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph. Anytime somebody sees an angel in their glorified state or sees the glory of God, their immediate response is fear. Every single time. Nobody goes, oh, cool, an angel. It's absolute fear. There's just the assumption that they're going to die, basically, when they see this. And then we always know, as we pointed out before, the angel always makes an opening announcement, and then he always has to say, fear not. He always has to say, calm down, calm down, calm down, basically. And this is what happens here. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. And so the angel just used two different titles for Jesus. He used the word Christ, which refers to Jesus being the Messiah, the Savior. And he used the word Lord, referring to Jesus ruling over everything. This is a huge, huge concept. You'll find in the New Testament, Jesus referred to many times as Lord and Savior. And they mean two very different things. A lot of people get very excited about the Savior part. It's great that he can save us from our sins. But Jesus also says, if you want to accept me as Savior, you must accept me as Lord. And the word Lord literally means master. And it's buying into the idea that Jesus owns us. He owns our lives. He owns our stuff. He owns our time. He owns everything. That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord. And this is why there's the sobering warning in scripture on the day of judgment when Jesus says there'll be many on that day who'll say, Lord, Lord. And he says, what do you mean, Lord, Lord? I don't even know you. And what it is, it's a picture of people saying, Lord, Lord. And and Jesus is saying, do you know what Lord means? It means very simply that you do what I ask you to do. But if you don't even do what I ask you to do, don't call me Lord. That's just silly. And so we have here the first appearing of the words Lord and Savior together in Scripture. And that's who Jesus is. You can't accept him as Savior without accepting him as Lord. Because if you believe that he can be your Savior, then he certainly deserves to be your Lord. He certainly deserves it. In verse 12, it says this, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths. Again, he goes out of his way to mention that because it's unusual, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So can, can you imagine this? The night is just still. I mean, I think like the only way you can describe it is absolutely still night. You know, the shepherds are out there. It's quiet. They're just sitting there going, yep, yep. And then it's like, like the sky just explodes. And it's lit up with these angels speaking out praise in this massive united voice. It must have been completely overwhelming and and awe-inspiring to see. Just incredible. And they're saying the Savior has been born now. And, And it's a perfect picture of heaven literally just colliding with the earth. Like like an enormous meteor. That's what's going on in the spiritual world. All the glory of God is somehow flying down to the earth and hitting with incredible impact. And all the glory of God is there contained in a baby. 
The incarnation is, is absolutely mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. I've I spent hours pondering it and thinking about it, and I can just tell you that I don't get it. I don't get it. But it's amazing, and it's wonderful, and it, it's the most incredible, incredible thing that the glory of God came down to us and contained itself in human form. That's incredible. So while we're here, let, let's do another uh, Christmas Busters. <gasps> this, 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 this one's easier to swallow, okay. Very interesting. Do you notice that the angels don't sing, if you actually read it? The angels don't sing. It says they speak and they say. There's no record of like the angels singing Handel's Messiah or anything like that. They just speak out in a super masculine voice, in one voice, they speak out praise to God. So the good news is if we ever do a Christmas pageant, we're going to get way more dudes signing up to be angels if they don't have to sing. So I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be good. But no record at all of them singing. Verse 15, it says, So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And now we see the natural response from people who have encountered Jesus. They, they want to tell somebody else. Verse 17, now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told to them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. So it must have been incredibly encouraging to Mary and Joseph when the shepherds show up. I mean, there, there's a side of it that when you've just given birth, it's not really a time you're thinking, hey, you know what would be great? A bunch of visitors. But it had to be encouraging when the shepherds showed up and they said, we just saw the sky filled with angels saying that your son's been born and that he's God. That was a timely encouragement for Mary and Joseph that they were not alone, that God was in this with them. A timely, timely encouragement. But, but what you notice is it says Mary pondered these things. And Mary is a great example here of somebody who doesn't get too high and doesn't get too low. She doesn't get too worked up, even though this is a really exciting thing. Because remember, she, she's just come from a 90-mile journey. She's just come from giving birth all alone. No family support. But it's safe to assume that Mary doesn't get too low. She doesn't get too high. She just ponders in her mind, essentially, God, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And there's a lot for us to learn. When life is amazing and everything's great, it doesn't mean we say, oh, you know what? I finally turned the corner and the rest of my life is going to be easy now. Awesome. And when things are hard, we don't say, well, apparently God has abandoned me. He's gone. And my life is just going to be horrible for the rest of it. It says that Mary pondered these things in her heart. And so for us... We should constantly be asking the question, what is God doing in my life right now? What is he doing? What does he want me to do? And sometimes there's no great plan. Sometimes what God wants us to do is he's just saying, just endure. Just persevere. Just hang in there. Hold on to me. And you'll come out the other side. But Mary's a great example. Doesn't get too high. Doesn't get too low. She thinks and ponders to herself, what, what is God doing here? What's he doing in this situation? Verse 20, Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. 
And notice this, the angels spoke out peace on earth. That was their declaration. There's, there's peace on earth. But we can be pretty confident that Jesus didn't usher in world peace when he came. His own ministry would encounter haters and people who desired to kill him, protests, and eventually his bloody murder on the cross. Where's the peace? And after Jesus ascends back into heaven after his resurrection, the early church is marked by believers who are fed to lions, sawn in half, crucified and persecuted for their faith. So where's the peace? And the only conclusion we can draw is that the peace the angels are singing about, not singing about, has absolutely nothing to do with the earthly circumstances of anyone. Whatever the peace is that they're talking about, it doesn't have anything to do with what's going on on the earth or anybody's circumstances. The peace that they're talking about, I I believe, is twofold. And this is on your outlines. Firstly, Jesus came to end a war by his death. He came to end a war by his death. I I don't think we talk about this enough in church in general, but, but if you imagine... God drawing a line in the sand, and God is on one side. And on one side is everybody who is the friend of God. And on the other side is everyone who is the enemy of God. And if we have ever chosen to do things our way instead of God's, Scripture says that we've lined up with the enemies of God. Now, every single one of us haven't done that once Every single one of us do it still pretty much every day. Every day we have an interaction with somebody where we choose our way over God's way. Where we choose to be snappy instead of being gracious. We do this every day. And so scripture says we've lined up with the enemies of God. And the way scripture describes it is that we are at war with God. We need to understand that before the cross, before Jesus... And if we haven't accepted Jesus yet, we are at war with God. This isn't like a little tiff where we see things differently. We've lined up with the enemies of God. We're on different sides. And usually at this point, some of us are thinking, well, you know, God should just let that stuff go. He should just let that go. I mean, he's a big God. Can't he just let my my little sins go and overlook them? Here's the thing. If we do that, we're saying that rebellion against God is not that big of a deal. That's what we're saying. We're saying he should let it go because rebellion against him is is not really that big of a deal. Rejecting him is not that big of a deal, so he should just let it go. (laughs) The Bible teaches that there's no bigger deal than the holiness of God. More than any other attribute, the Bible talks about the holiness of God. The attribute of God that the Bible talks about second most is his wrath. (laughs) We're like, well, when do we get to love? When do we get to grace? You get there after you've realized that God is holy and that we've lined up with the enemies of God. We are at war with God. And so when, when the angel shows up and the angel speaks out, peace to you, what the angel is saying is he's saying, Jesus has come. And because Jesus has come, there can be peace in this war between man and God. What does Jesus say among his last 
sentences before his death on the cross, he speaks out and he says, it is finished. It's finished. He's talking about his work, but he's also talking about the war between man and God that he came to end on the cross. This is why scripture says about Jesus, in in Ephesians it says, he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Secondly, the peace that the angels are speaking about was the glorious truth that God was now with us. He was no longer God over there or or God over there in the holy of holies in the temple, but, but he was now God here. He's now Emmanuel. He's God with us. And God had come to usher in a new age when he would be with all of his people all the time. All the time. And we know that that Jesus, he doesn't come and go from our lives. He doesn't check in and check out. He's always with us. He's perfectly faithful. When life is hard, he's with us. When life is easy, he's with us. Therefore, our peace doesn't come and go based on our circumstances. This is the truth. Real peace comes from the presence of Jesus in our lives. The presence of Jesus in our lives. And so the angel is saying, peace to mankind. Because Jesus is ushering in the age when he, his presence, his spirit will be with you always. Peace will be with you always. You can be placed in any circumstance and no matter how difficult, you can have peace because Jesus is with you. So the peace that the angel is talking about has nothing to do with Jesus has come to make the weather nice and calm so that we can have some nice songs to sing and we can pretend that everything's better. It's not the peace they're talking about. It says, listen, peace between you and God. Peace, God, in you so that no matter where you find yourself, there's peace available to you. That's what the angel is speaking about when they talk about the peace of God. John Wesley was a man who who was used mightily by God to bring the gospel and revival to two continents. He was, a, he was a giant of the faith who had probably memorized almost the entire Bible. This is one of my favorite stories of all time. If I've done it before, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, but as he lay on his deathbed, John Wesley gathers his family around him and he summons the strength to speak his last words. And he could have said something just incredibly poetic, could have quoted any verse that he wanted to. But it's recorded that Wesley sat up during the last 60 seconds of his life and he said, best of all, God is with us. And he lay back down, he thrust his hand in the air and he used his last breath to say one more time with emphasis, the best of all, God is with us. And then he died. There is no greater truth No more transformational truth. No truth more powerful, whether you're on top of the mountain or in the worst place you've ever been in in your life right now. There is no truth more glorious than the truth that God is with us. He's with us. It changes everything. Changes everything. Which leads us to this question. What does it mean to be blessed angel Gabriel shows up to Mary and tells her she's blessed, tells her she's highly favored, highly favored. So you're going to get some special treatment from God. 
Mary's blessing included an unplanned pregnancy at the worst possible time, leading to a ruined reputation and the risk of being stoned to death. I'm so blessed. Being highly favored led to a lonely birth with no midwife, literally surrounded by animals. That's the highly favored Mary. Later in life, as as we found her own children, don't even believe in the virgin birth. And later on, she would have to watch her own son be crucified and die in front of her eyes. Mary's called blessed and, and highly favored. And I'm sure she prayed a lot during the birth season of her life. And what you notice is that her circumstances don't immediately change. It's not like she's called blessed, so she has it all so easy. It's not like she's called highly favored, so everything goes smoothly. It's hard, but God sends these timely encouragements. And I have to believe that those shepherds arrived, and later on we'll see wise men arrive, and we'll see Simeon prophesy at the circumcision of Jesus. That I'm sure that these moments arrived right at the point where it was hardest to believe that God was really there. And that's how God tends to work. And then he shows up and says, just in case you forgot, I'm with you. I'm with you. Don't forget it. But Mary's called blessed. She's called highly favored. And it doesn't seem like everything's coming together. So what does it mean to be blessed? I believe that the answer is found by asking another question. And it's this question. What's the very best thing that God could ever give us? And the answer is more of himself. It's more of himself. The greatest blessing God can give is more of himself. More of him is worth more than comfort. More of him is worth more than rest. More of him is worth more than having all your needs perfectly met. More of him is worth more than that. And here's the amazing thing. Scripture says if we'll accept his invitation to receive more of him, we'll get all that other stuff taken care of as well. You'll have peace. You'll have joy. You'll have your needs met. He'll take care of all that. But I believe that in order for God to give us more of himself, sometimes he has to go to work in us and sometimes he has to rip our heart wide open because when everything is easy, Instead of pressing into God and thanking him for everything being great, the truth is we tend to become apathetic towards God and we stop relying on God. And I really believe, and it's shown again and again and again in the stories of Scripture, that sometimes God wants to give us more of himself so badly that he has to rip our heart open to where everything is raw, everything feels exposed. Then he puts his hand right on our heart. He says, here, have more of me. And so if that's where you are, if, if you're in that moment where your life is just ripped wide open, you're just feeling crushed by a situation that you're in, the invitation of God is more of Him. And we tend to do one of two things. We either accept the invitation or we get bitter and start telling ourselves that God's forgotten us. He's never forgotten us. He's simply inviting us to experience more of him. And God wants every single one of us 
in this room to be able to say with honesty, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. And not say it in a way where we're just pretending that everything's okay. But to say it honestly, man, I, I'm, I'm blessed. Why? Best of all, God's with us. God's with me. He's with me. I'm blessed. Aren't you going through this and this and this? Yeah, yeah, I am. Doesn't it hurt? Yes, it does. Am I blessed? Yeah, I am. Because he's still with me. He's still with me. Would you bow your head and, and close your eyes? And The biggest questions I want us to ask today for each of our own lives is very simply, do you have peace? Do you have peace? Are you full of turmoil and and angst and hurt and pain, but there's no peace? I want you to know this morning that, that Jesus sympathizes with what you're going through. Not only does he sympathize, but he knows. He knows what it is to hurt. He knows what it is to be afraid. He knows what it is to be, to be overwhelmed by life, by the future. He knows. So this morning, if you'd say, I, I don't have peace, I would encourage you as we worship for about the next 20 minutes, just begin to thank God that he is with you and that he is your peace. And as you do that, you're going to find the peace of the Holy Spirit begin to flow through your life. But start by just confessing that. Start by just thanking him that he is your peace. He is your peace. Go and take communion at some point. Come back and thank him that he is your peace. And if you don't feel blessed, I want you to know that there is an invitation from God to come and get more of him. And so in this, in this time, if that's you, would you just make your confession, God, God, more than all my problems being fixed, more than more money or a job or a fixed relationship or, or, or more than those specifics, what I want is more of you. Because if I have you, you'll take care of everything else. See, what God wants is for us to spend all our energy wanting Him and letting Him take care of all the circumstances, all the problems, all the needs. That's why He says, just seek me. Seek me first and I'll take care of everything else. So if you have a list of things today that you need God to do in your life, Scripture says He knows. He knows before you even ask. I want to challenge you in faith within your own heart to just put that list aside 
and say, God, what I really need is more of you. That's what I really need right now. I need more of you in my life. And because you've promised to give me more of you, I, I am blessed. I am blessed. You're with me. Best of all, you are with me.